The Health Service Board meeting of Tuesday, May 11th, 2023 is now called to order. Would you please rise for the Pledge of Allegiance? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Um, Madam Secretary, would you please call the roll? Agenda item number two, roll call, starting with uh, President Scott is excused today. Vice President Howe? Present. Commissioner Breslin? Present. Commissioner Canning? Present. Commissioner Follinsby? Present. And Commissioner Zvansky? Present. With that, we have quorum. Great, thank you. Item number three, please. Agenda item number three is general public comment, an opportunity for members of the public to comment on any matter within the board's jurisdiction that is not on the agenda, including requesting that the board place a matter on a future agenda item. And we'll be posting our instructions. So, the Health Service Board welcomes public participation during our public comment periods. There is an opportunity to, for general public comment at the beginning of the meeting and an opportunity to comment on each item on the agenda. In-person public comment will be first and then virtual public comment. For anyone waiting in person, you're welcome to approach the podium now. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to comment in length unless the board president deems new public comment time limits during the meeting. All public comments are to be made concerning the agenda item that has been presented. A caller may ask questions of the policy body, but there's no obligation to answer or engage in dialogue with the caller. The Health Service Board will hear up to 30 minutes of remote public comment total for each agenda item. Remote public comment for people who have received an accommodation due to a disability will not count toward that 30-minute limit. Remote public comment WebEx instructions include members of the public attending via phone by calling in 2415-655-0001. When prompted, use access code 2599-242-5199, then press pound. You'll be prompted to enter the webinar password 1145, then press pound. Press pound three to be added to the public comment queue, and you'll hear the prompt, you have raised your hand to ask a question. Please wait until that, until the host calls on you. When the system message says your line has been unmuted, this is your time to speak. You will be muted until your time has expired, and when your time has expired. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the queue to speak. A raised hand icon will appear next to your name. When you're unmuted in the system, a request to unmute will appear on your screen. Please select unmute to speak. Once you hear me say, welcome caller, you can begin speaking. When your time has expired, you'll be muted, and then please click on that hand icon to lower your hand. Members of the public are encouraged to state their name clearly, although they may remain anonymous. I'll give you an audible warning when you have 30 seconds remaining. And when your three minutes have ended, I'll say thank you for your call. You'll be placed back on mute, and I'll unmute the next caller. Thank you to SFGovTV and Media Services for sharing this meeting with the public. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment, and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, there are zero callers on the phone line and zero callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Um, item number four, please. Agenda item number four is approval with possible modifications of the minutes of the meeting set forth below. This will be presented by 
Vice President Howe, and these are for the minutes of the April 13th, 2023 meeting. Colleagues, are there any questions or edits to the minutes? Um, if none, may I have a motion? Move acceptance without um, objection. A second. It's been moved and seconded. Um, may we have public comment on this item? Thank you, uh, Vice President Howe. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching on the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. No one has approached the podium, so we will move to our remote public comment and our moderator will let us know of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, there are zero callers on the phone line and zero callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Agenda item number five. Please. We need to vote. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. I think the heat has gotten to my brain. <laughs> <laughs> May we take a roll call vote, please? Yes. Roll call vote, starting with Vice President Howe. Aye. Commissioner Breslin. Aye. Commissioner Canning. Aye. Commissioner Fonsby? Aye. And Commissioner Zavansky? Aye. Thank you. Uh, it's unanimous. Boy, they're really trying to get us out of here on time. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> We're hoping right. that it comes through. Yeah, that's cool. Right. Agenda item number five, please. Agenda item number five is the President's report. This is a discussion item and can be presented by Vice President Howe. Um, thank you. I do not have a report for today, uh, other than to say that we have a hefty, uh, we have hefty items to consider today as well as at the, our next meeting. So thank you all for being present. So I, uh, I guess we'll have public comment on those brief comments. <laughs> okay, we can open that up. Uh, to public comment. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue. Board Secretary, there are zero callers on the phone line and zero callers have entered the public comment queue. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Uh, agenda item number six, please. Agenda item number six, director's report. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Executive Director Abby Ant. Uh, good afternoon, commissioners. Um, my report is fairly brief this month. Um, I do want to call attention that um, the obvious that we are still in the blackout period because we are still in negotiations with some of our plans. And uh, so, uh, and to reiterate uh, um, Commissioner Ch uh, Howe's comments, um, we will be having a special meeting on the 25th of this month um, and um, we'll speak to that when we look at the rates and benefits calendar. Uh, also, I just want to call out that it is um, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, um, and our team, our well-being team, uh, both the EAP side and the well-being side, are hyper-focused on uh, Mental Health Awareness Month and uh, have a number of activities and uh, links that have been set out to citywide champions. Um, 
And uh, so we are attending to, to that very important um, issue. It's also Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Um, that month was chosen to memorialize the arrival of the first known Japanese immigrant to the U.S. on May 7, 1843, and um, to honor the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad built by as many as 20,000 Chinese workers on May 10, 1869. Um, there's a number of other references in, um, in my director's report. Uh, we join uh, many of our city public agencies in celebrating um, uh, this month together. Um, it also, um, there are um, a deck of slides attached to my director's report which calls out in great detail the um, return uh, to I'd hesitate uh, to use the word normal, but to come off of the public health <laughs> emergency uh, state that we've been in at a federal and state level. I think, as you may recall, the San Francisco state of emergency ended uh, in February, uh, but uh, today actually is a pretty hallmark day for the end of the federal COVID-19 public health um, uh, declaration um, so that's a that's quite a momentous occasion. You get to do this once every hundred years. Um, so I'm I'm hoping that uh, the guidance that's in the materials that uh, are in your packet today are are as clear as they can be for our membership. Uh, there's quite a variation in um, how different plans are are um, how they're regulated and what um, what has to be covered by the plan and what. Uh, cost we may pick up and be reimbursed by the plan or members may uh, absorb uh, on their own. And so there's quite a bit of detail in there. Uh, I'm hats off to uh, Aon and our um, communications team uh, at HSS for pulling all this information together and, and making it readily available to our member services teams as well as our, um, our members at, at large. Uh, we will be going through a period of confusion, I'm sure. I had that discussion with my husband this morning telling him to go pick up <laughs> the test kits and how they were going to be paid for, and it took longer than it needed to, but <laughs> because it's so confusing. So I, I think we'll be going through this for a little bit. The um, Unified School District uh, um, is uh, continuing to unwind uh, their very complicated problems that they have with their payroll systems, uh, but by, indicated, by our indications of uh, the calls that we're receiving, um, things seem to be improving in that we're getting less calls and we do continue to have uh, dedicated lines and services for USD employees that are having um, challenges and we're, I think everyone's looking forward to an end to that and a uh, successful resolution to getting that software working um, uh, 100%. Um, also, I think uh, the board is uh, aware of uh, the study that we did, um, a partnership with Catalyst for Payment Reform, the Peter funded by the Peterson Foundation, conducted by the UC Berkeley, uh, on our ACO population uh, that is administered through Blue Shield of California. So it was quite a partnership uh, with some very interesting results, and there will be a webinar that is hosted by the Catalyst for uh, Payment Reform that will air live next uh, Wednesday. Wednesday, uh, but will be available um, a, a, on a recording uh, as well if people want to weigh in at a different uh, place and time. And so if any of the commissioners would need any assistance in watching that, just uh, let Holly know and we'll figure it out with you. 
Um, operationally, uh, we are still challenged by not having enough people in chairs in our member services uh, division. We are making progress. Uh, we do have interviews lined up. We are hopeful to be getting some good hires in in the next few weeks. And um, so that's really um, great. We also received Civil Service Commission approval to proceed with a contract service to help us with uh, call answering. Um, so it's um, that's a, a, a new program that we will be starting up and uh, are hard at work with our contracts team to get a request for proposals uh, in shape to uh, be able to get that out on the market uh, very soon, hopefully within the next week. Uh, so that we can um, engage that service. Uh, and we're staying busy. Uh, there's lots of activities that continue on, and uh, IFTCAR will give the finance report shortly. Um, I think that's probably all I need to highlight right now. I'll take any questions from the commission. Thank you, Executor, Executive Director Yant. Um, any questions, colleagues, or comments? Yes. If I can make a couple comments. Um, one, of course, the physician needs to make a comment about COVID. And just to remind um, all, all our staff and members that uh, there's been a recent update in the uh, recommendations for boosting. Um, and so that the second, the bivalent vaccine, which was available about eight, nine months ago, still has a good activity. It's now recommended that if you fall into certain categories, which include, you know, underlying conditions, including age, um, that a second dose is now available. Uh, I got mine yesterday and I'm here. So, um, so just to remind everyone that um, I think as, as uh, <clears throat> Director Yant pointed out, uh, we are now living with COVID. It's not gone away, it won't go away. Um, but just to remind people that we still have responsibility to care for ourselves and those around us. Um, the second is I want to applaud um, the health service staff regarding the Sam School Unified School District issue. I saw at least one rather extensive article in the Chronicle outline all the problems, particularly with payroll and with uh, retirement benefits. And it was notable in the absence of complaints about uh, interruption of health care. Um, and so I think that's a tribute not only uh, to uh, to I think it's a tribute mostly to his staff uh, and to Abby Ant for working with the Central Unified School District to make sure that there was not an interruption of health care benefits in the midst of all this chaos. So I, I thought I applauded the absence of comment about um, the health service system in that article. And maybe there are other articles I missed, but anyway, I want to thank the staff and everyone for being so diligent and continuing to work on this um, as manifested in the comments. And so those are my comments. Thank you. Um, other commissioners? If none, um, we'll take public comment. Thank you, Vice President Howe. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, pre please press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public queue at this time. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment, and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have one caller on the phone line. Zero callers have specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. A reminder to all callers on the line, you must dial star three now if you wish to join the public comment queue for this specific agenda item. We will wait five more seconds and then close public comment for this agenda item.
Board Secretary, there are still no callers in the queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Would you please call item number seven, please? Yes, agenda item number seven is SFHSS financial report as of March 31st, 2023. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Iftikhar Hussein, SFHSS chief financial officer. And I'll be working to make sure that comes up on the screen. Yeah, okay. experience we're seeing, um, you know, beginning with fall last year where we were having high medical claims, uh, seems to have eased off. And um, um, uh, so that's a big plus. So, we, so remember when we said we were looking at claims in prior presentations, uh, the high dollar claims uh, were coming in at a very high rate. And at least in the first quarter, we're seeing that really stabilize, slow down. Um, so that's I'm sorry, could you get maybe a little closer to the microphone? I, I'm not <laughs> sure if everyone's hearing you. I'm having a bit of difficulty. That's great. All right. Is this better? Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Much All right. And then so, just a, a note. Um, I don't believe that the screens are coming through for the presentation. No, so they are. Yeah, they are. They are? Yeah. Okay. Are. Okay. Happened. There we go. Yep. Thank you. All right. So I'll, 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 re, I'll say that again. I'll repeat myself. The, um, the net trust balance projection now uh, is a net even. We were in prior reports, we were projecting a decrease in the trust balance uh, as, by the end of the year. And the reason for that is that the claims experience in the first quarter uh, is, um, is improving, is favorable. Um, so the high dollar claims that we saw uh, all of 22 for uh, us uh, are not there in Q1, but it is still early in the year, so they could come in. Okay. The other thing I want to point out is that I've talked about, in the report talks about the timing differences and I just want to elaborate on that. So the revenue coming into the trust comes on a pay period basis. So there are, and the expenses go out monthly. So there are certain months in which we have three pay periods. Um, March was one of them. So that's why the nine month um, column shows a surplus, but it would reverse by the, it correct itself by the end of the year. Um, so the pharmacy rebates are consistent with what we were expecting. Um, interest um, is higher this year than last year, really due to higher interest rates. And um, we are expecting, but projecting budget on the sustainability fund and the general fund uh, is ahead of plan because of the vacancies we've talked about. Uh, so that's my report. Happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, colleagues, do you have any questions for Iftikhar? No? I just have a question about the pharmacy rebates. Uh, there's so much less than projected. Oh, that's the 8.7 was we already collected through March. We expect to collect 14.8 by the end of the year. Oh, okay. So, so there's more coming. Yes. Yeah, oh, I get it. Thank you. So, if I understand, that's 8.7 for the in, for the fiscal year to date. Yes. Correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we're expecting another six million. Yes. Before by June 30th. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Um, if no other questions or comments, we'll take public comment. Thank you, President Howe. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. 
And no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. And I'm going to actually step in and check for us. So we have one caller on the phone line, and zero callers have specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. I'll indicate when there are no more callers in the queue and give five more seconds for anyone who may want to raise their hand at this point. Zero callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. With that, there's no more public comment. Thank you. Um, agenda item number eight, please. Thank you, President Howe. Agenda item number eight, Racial Equity Action Plan 2022 Departmental Progress Report. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Leticia Harris, SFHSS Senior Health Plan Programmer and Racial Equity Lead. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Commissioners. For the record, my name is Leticia Harris and I am a Senior Health Program Planner and Racial Equity Lead at SFHSS. Make sure the slides are. And I think what we're experiencing now is our um, tech support is actually in control of the sharing the screen. So if you can cue and just verbally cue. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. All right. Let's change the slides. So you don't. You no longer need to. Yeah. We'll have it um, through our tech support. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for changing. Yeah. Commissioners, this report highlights racial equity work going on at the citywide level, department, and also nation in relation to our San Francisco citywide mandate. I'll be sharing a timeline of milestones um, in SFHSS's racial equity experience and discuss our data-driven approach. I'll also give progress reporting on areas in relation to our strategic plan. And lastly, I'm going to highlight equity practices that are currently being implemented as well as learnings we'd like to glean from other citywide departments. Advancing to that next slide. Thank you, tech support. We have our agenda here on the screen um, with the overall aim of reporting progress and seeking collaborative input from our commissioners and members of the public. Next slide, please. SFHSS is striving to be a change agent in this work uh, within our department and with cities, city partners across San Francisco. We wanted to set some context in relation to the national efforts that are going on and some of the historical perspectives around how the Office of Racial Equity was actually formed for context as the basis for the presentation. At the citywide level, the Office of Racial Equity was formed as a new division of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission in July of 2019. You'll hear me refer to the Office of Racial Equity as ORE for the purposes of this presentation. They were granted the authority to create a citywide framework and to mandate the completion of racial equity action plans on behalf of every department. So if you see the map on the screen, we are actually one of 100 cities and 30 states that participate in the Government Alliance for Race and Equity. The map of California shows other participating jurisdictions and the fact that San Francisco, myself included, was one of the representatives that attended the Government Alliance for Race and Equity Northern California Learning Cohort. So that served as a lot of the foundation for the work that we've been doing. We wanted to make sure that our framework is aligning with other local, national, and leaders from San Francisco divisions as well. Next slide, please. As we move forward in discussing the Racial Equity Action Plan, we also wanted to differentiate between the two facets of the ORE mandate. ORE Phase 1 was released in summer of 2020. 
and it highlights internal staff programs and policies, including the completion of a racial equity climate survey. Qualitative and quantitative results of those surveys served as a foundation for building empowering workplace environments from the inside out, mostly focused on org transformation. Phase two framework will be distributed in citywide in 2023 and will focus on the delivery of external services and programs, targeting community engagement and external equity indicators to support vulnerable populations. Now, as the commissioners are very familiar with, HSS is already fully steeped in the external facets of this work as well, while we await the framework from the city. Next slide, please. SFHSS has also experienced many milestones uh, over several years of working on the mandate. Since 2018, the following activities have contributed to our REAP development process. We've had our inaugural racial equity climate survey. We've also done foundations training and implicit bias training for our staff. We've had discussions around early experiences with race, visioning for an equitable staff environment, and we're heavily looking at staff demographics data and survey analysis. The board is very familiar with the monthly reports that we do about racial equity, diversity, and inclusion as a part of the director's report. We echo those same uh, report outs at our all staff meetings as well. Next slide, please. Although the city requires only biannual reporting on progress, SFHSS has actually presented our racial equity action plan progress reporting to the board on an annual basis. I wanted to call attention to the screen. We've done several business initiative reports, annual updates. We've also had our progress annual report that we're presenting today, and all of these reports are available via our website in the archive, just for historical purposes and a deeper dive. Next slide, please. Throughout the development of our Racial Equity Action Plan, we actually spent a great deal of time thinking about how to measure success and ultimately who's better off as a result of this work. We ground each initiative in a baseline data from available sources, including race and equity data that's available for our membership. I wanted to draw a parallel between this report out and the annual report that was presented last month just to show that our race and equity data has greatly improved in 2023 by over 5,000 employees. So in 2023, the number of employees who did not enter race data was reduced to only about 1,800. Categories for race and ethnicity data collection vary wildly in our collection systems across the city, even department by department. So there is a citywide movement to evaluate categories such as Asian that may not represent fully the depth and breadth of the population that it seeks to describe. Overall, we're seeking to better understand our baseline and strengthen our data partnerships with our health plans to better identify and address health disparities that may disproportionately affect communities of color in our population. Next slide, please. Similar to race and equity data, an absence of sexual orientation and gender identity data does make it difficult to quantify the needs and well-being of our LGBTQIA population. So SFHSS is working with our health plan partners to expand sexual orientation and gender identity categories in accordance with the data ordinance that was passed by the SF Board of Supervisors. These expanded categories would be inclusive of non-binary categories like trans female or male, gay, lesbian, bisexual, in addition to binary categories such as male and female that are currently used today and that are not all inclusive or equitable by themselves. Next slide, please. 
The latter part of this presentation focuses on two specific questions asked of every department by the Office of Racial Equity. The first question, what is an equity practice that your department has implemented in the last year that it can share with other departments? SFHSS is leading with equity in support of our membership in accessing the care that they need when they need it, regardless of demographic characteristics. SFHSS is actually very unique in departments in the city, in that equity is not only ingrained as a strategic goal, but it's a facet of our mission, vision, and values as well. The strategic plan process represents a shift from the provision of benefit services to a deeper understanding of our population's needs in alignment with health equity principles. Having a firm grasp on equity and health equity as our core spheres of influence in relation to equity action planning and also mirroring the citywide framework to tackle internal and external phases of work is a practice we wish to share with other departments. Next slide, please. Since the inception of the 2018 plan, we have confronted racial equities and civil inequities as a nation. We've experienced a pandemic that has highlighted some of the disparities in our society. As we advance the strategic plan, we're aligning with leading authorities to make sure that equity is ingrained in every aspect. The intersections between each and every one of our strategic goals is illuminated on the screen. The intersections between equity, affordable and sustainable, primary care, mental health, and the optimization of benefits administration services. Next slide, please. I mentioned that SFHSS is tackling an internal and external phases of work since we wish to mirror the citywide framework. This slide notes specifically internal actions. We've discussed with our board that the internal lens is equity. Equity as it applies to our workforce, equity as it applies to our health service board. Some of the actions that have been noted in the past year of progress we are looking into survey analysis to reproduce another engagement survey. We've had diverse educational opportunities with our board and our staff. Our director's reports and all staff's trainings to normalize conversation about equity and to operationalize new behaviors that support inclusivity and belonging for our staff. We also held an inaugural retreat and an employee appreciation potluck to thank employees for the good work that they do in alignment with our values of compassion and accountability. When staff do move on to expanded opportunities in and outside of the city, SFHSS is also seeking to conduct exit interviews to increase the overall engagement experience of our staff to improve organizational excellence, retention, and engagement. All of these internal actions uh, to apply our equity lens demonstrate or culture inclusion and belonging from an internal aspect. Next slide, please. This bookend slide has the external actions. And as we've discussed at the board, external applications are for health equity versus equity in our customer service lens and also in our health plan partnerships. This includes requesting health equity statements, declarations from our health plan partners, asking them if they have working groups that are tasked with addressing disproportionate health outcomes. We're also auditing current measurement practices as mentioned for SOGI data to expand categories as needed. We are asking them if they are applying national standards for cultural and linguistic appropriateness. We're also making sure that they are seeking NCQA health accreditation to the best of their abilities or if they are planning to do so. We've presented at national conferences and also webinars on accelerating health equity in underserved communities and had representation on the Department of Managed Healthcare Quality Committee as well. We're partnering with subject matter experts at every opportunity, like the Purchasers Business Group on Health, 
to talk about investments of time and energy and why it's worthwhile for other purchasers to invest in health equity and equity from that lens. Next slide, please. The second question asked by the Office of Racial Equity to all departments in the city, what is an equity practice that is a priority for your department from which you wish to learn in the upcoming year? SFHSS met with the Office of Racial Equity last month to let them know that we are receiving a lot of asks around mental health support, right? We talked about this being Mental Health Awareness Month, and we actually are receiving them in relation to a specific directive from the Office of Racial Equity that tells all city and county departments that they must provide supportive environments for affinity groups prioritizing historically marginalized people. Those can come in the form of employee resource groups, affinity groups, cultural wellness and healing circles. We've been receiving a lot of requests for those and we want to illuminate as we have to the board that there is a national shortage of behavioral health clinicians in this space, particularly those that are black, indigenous and people of color. Although SFHSS has made significant strides in the area of mental health, which I will illuminate on the next slide, we do want to better understand how we can respond to these asks, especially since they correlate directly to the Office of Racial Equity mandate. Next slide, please. We wanted to let the Office of Racial Equity know that there is a direct link between equity and behavioral health. We wanted to illuminate some of the understandings that we have around the social determinants. And we also wanted to share with them stats that show that certain populations that are marginalized or vulnerable are more at risk for experiences of depression, substance abuse, for example, um, that these symptoms are more likely to be persistent and that they can also experience distress more frequently. So we're illuminating that this equity has a direct crosswalk to the importance of mental health as it relates to citywide work. The nature of the asks that we've been receiving relate to funding, staffing, tools, resources, and best practices around affinity groups. Also, a need for clinicians that can heal in these circles and lead these circles through facilitation and affinity. Point in time and ongoing support, and also a call out for specific populations in the city that are in need of affinity group support. Next slide, please. We've also shared with the Office of Racial Equity the significant strides that we've made to support the membership mental health. These include the 24-7 EAP services in response to the mental health crisis, launching customized apps, mental health awareness campaigns, presentations to the health service board from subject matter experts, and ingraining mental health as a goal within our plan. We want to make sure that we're representing the rich diversity of our membership. And at our recent mental health forum, we cre created personas to do just that. Next slide, please. In addition to the noted efforts, we know that there is still so much more to learn about how to support equitable mental health for our membership at large. We are posing these questions as an area of learning to the Office of Racial Equity. How is the Office of Racial Equity cataloging employee resource groups citywide? If we had a catalog of these groups, it would be a ready resource that our EAP could support and hand out to our membership. We also want to differentiate between whether those employee resource groups are internal, meaning servicing only specific departments, or if they're willing to cross-pollinate between departments for more of an uptick. We also want to understand how the Office of Racial Equity is responding to staffing and budgetary support. It's a tech support. Responding to budgetary support for mandated employee resource groups citywide. 
We also want the ORE to help us to understand, as a city is experiencing citywide shortages in staffing and budget, how can we support right, other groups in having the resources they need to still support mental health as a beacon with EAP and well-being being situated in SFHSS? And lastly, are there existing tools and resources, best practices or guidance that we can help disseminate through our well-being champion networks and otherwise? Final slide, please. As I wrap up this presentation, I want to reiterate that the reporting milestones for the Office of Racial Equity afford us the opportunity to not only share what we've learned, but to acquire more knowledge and further our understanding by posing educated questions about racial equity to other departments that are willing to share their knowledge and learnings as well. To learn more about our department's efforts, I do invite you to visit our racial equity webpage. It is under the About Us link, very close to our strategic plan, in conjunction with our strategic plan to highlight the relationship. I also invite you to follow the second link displayed, which shows all racial equity action plans for all 60 departments in the city. It can be sometimes difficult to understand how this work is going on in other capacities, but I find it very illuminating to see that we're not alone in this work, and it's taking shape across the city in many ways. Thank you for your ongoing input and engagement. Thank you, Leticia. Uh, colleagues, any comments or questions? Um, I, thank you very much. This is concise and yet very detailed, and I appreciate that. I'm, I'm particularly impressed with a couple of the items you bring up about coordination. When you showed the map of California, many of, almost all, including Merced, are in our catchment area for our employees and their dependents who are often commute in to the city from other areas. And so I'm wondering if maybe you could address the efforts to sort of coordinate with some of the other uh, health um, county, some other counties in this in this initiative as well, and then um, I'm also impressed with the fact that you're integrating and you know have access to the all the plans for all 60 departments. I'm still, I guess, maybe you could maybe clarify a little bit about how these 60 departments also. Um, work together? Um, is it a once a month you meet or once a week or whatever you do? Because this is all, you know, really critical. Absolutely. There is one racial equity lead um, that attends a monthly meeting coordinated by the Office of Racial Equity. It is an opportunity for us to hear about best practices and tools for other departments, and it has also helped to inform some of the working groups around the reporting milestones each and every month. In relation to the larger GAIR, what they call GAIR Government Alliance for Race and Equity, they actually have an online database where you can pose questions and keep in contact with all of the divisions that you were in contact with when you went through the GEAR training for us was back in 2019, and I was blessed to have participated because since with budget cuts, it has been disbanded. So having that knowledge and having that year-long experience, still able to keep in touch with a lot of those respondents from other counties that are impacted by our membership, and they've been very readily available to share their best practices too. Thank you. <coughs> I have some concerns and questions. Um, I want to applaud you for this. Um, for what we're doing in health service. I think it's exceptional. Um, I have family members that have been working up at UCSF on some issues of the disparities in um, not the, so much the mental health, but the physical health treatment um, that um, various individuals receive or don't receive because of their ethnicity. And I guess I always thought that um, 
our exception was city employees because we had um, good coverage, good insurance, and good access to um, health benefits, and that those weren't issues. But I can see that, and I've since learned, um, that those health disparities can still impact our members when they go out um, to see their providers, whether or not they get the same consideration um, because of their different ethnicity or various whatever the, um, the situation is. And I also understand, because I was looking more for um, some of the Pacific Islanders because of working in the city for so many years, meeting so many different people, and noting that they weren't really, I'm sure that it's not a big population, but they weren't really noted. Um, the other exception I understand is that it's self-reporting. If individuals were down to 1,800 and some who don't wish to report, and I worked with a number of people who always indicated that it was human race um, and not any other ethnicity. But I'm wondering if we have any other way that we're tracking the kinds of services that our employees and our retirees are receiving from their health service providers to know that, that we have, that we're not dealing with a number of inequities based on um, race or culture. Do, you, do we know? Um, yeah. I think that is sort of the sole, the, the, the primary aim of this work is to identify patterns of behavior that are structurally uh, racist in the way that the care is delivered. And it's, it's a very sensitive um, uh, matter, and, but one that I, I, I think that our health systems have embraced. Um, and I know... Um, in meeting with our plans, we look at the data that, that, that is available based on um, ethnicity and race. And uh, there are many programs in place throughout the city, but there's um, clearly demonstrated throughout the pandemic um, the inequities that existed in people um, taking up the testing and vaccine and other things. <clears throat> and it's, it, it gets complicated very quickly. But we, I think there was tremendous learnings um, throughout the pandemic and with, because there was such intent here in San Francisco to be certain that we were reaching um, hard to reach populations and learning um, what those barriers may have been and working to break them down. So uh, it, this isn't a quick fix. Um, and it, you know, so there's many um, issues in uh, matters in play. But I, I will say that uh, through our health plan partners, um, it is not a subject that we shy away from. Uh, and there are a lot of there is a lot of good evidence of things working. Um, so, uh, but that doesn't mean that things are all good. And that's what we're continuing to identify where the um, issues are and what we can um, do to address it. Thank you. And I have one last question because I've spent some time up there. Hetch Hetchy, what do we know? Are we getting reports from uh, that area? Because it's not necessarily a very diverse area, especially with regard to our workforce. Do we have anything specific that comes down from Mariposa and Hetchy areas? Well, no, we haven't looked particularly there. I, the, the con, you know, It would be a special study to understand um, it's a very small population, yeah, it so is. it would be very difficult to draw any conclusions from the data. 
Um, but we, you know, our, um, we'd have to consider how we go about that because the small population gets smaller when it gets split up amongst the plans and providers. So we'd have to think that through a little bit. Can we just find a way to ask the questions anyway? Sort of open the door to that? We'll have to consider it okay. um, of, of how we do it because it, it's just kind of sheer numbers. And oh, I know. Numbers, you can't draw. Numbers. It would be descriptive only, and we have to be careful about HIPAA and other things. So okay. we'll, we'll consider what we can do about a small population. Rural populations in general yeah. um, do have barriers to health care, as we know. Um, and it's very much a, uh, a nationwide concern at this point as we look at mergers and acquisitions that have the unintended impact of uh, negatively inf uh, impacting rural um, hospitals that are closing uh, throughout the United States. So it's becoming a, a major um, issue um, throughout the country. So, Thank you very much. Appreciate I wanted to acknowledge Commissioner Vansky's comment as well about the stigma around the commercially insured population and inequities not existing. That, that, that is a real conversation that's happening. One thing we're doing with our health plan partners, we actually partnered with Blue Shield to attend the California Conference Board in San Diego um, and put on accelerating health equity in underserved population where we talked about dispelling the myths that the commercially insured population doesn't have social needs. We actually talked about how they benefit from community health advocacy around social determinants and other needs. So we are ringing that bell, because it's true. They need help as well. Thank you. I'm kind of unclear on like, are you talking about certain people who have trouble seeing a doctor, or, or what, what are the main issues here? And hospitals and doctors are hard for everybody to see right now, because it's very difficult to see a primary care doctor. I mean, ask me, I could tell you about making phone calls. So I don't know, maybe they know what, what color I am or maybe they don't like me because I'm old, I don't know. But I think this is a problem and I don't think it has anything to do with anything but it's a problem. I think it relates to a lot of the social determinants, even geography that you had pointed out. Maybe it's health literacy level of education. Could be food access, other needs that you wouldn't think the commercially insured population would need support, but we are hearing from our members via community health advocates that are embedded in their communities that that need does exist, so we have it readily accessible to them through some of our health plan resources. Is the need a shortage of doctors? I think it relates to different social determinants, food access, transportation, maybe to gain access to, depending on where they live, similar to what Claire had pointed out as well. Different factors, maybe English second language, a lot of different things, not just a shortage of doctors. If I could comment as well, because I think that this is really something, this is critical, and I think that until we start asking the questions, which is what this is doing, we won't get to the answers. Um, you know, there's data that shows that, um, that African Americans, no matter regardless of the social class who access dermatology, have a harder time because of the education of our dermatologists around skin problems of African Americans and the skin color. Um, and some misconceptions that was, was often ingrained in medical education. And likewise, there was a recent study that, I think, that looked at, at maternal infant mortality and outcomes across interracial, um, you know, um, 
groups, but, but match them for social economic status. And even in the highest social economic status, African-American women and infants had worse outcomes. So it's more than simply you know, a skin color. And so these social determinants, until we start looking at all of these, so probably access to physicians, but also access to health care that is sensitive to the issues regarding that group, I think. And we won't know this until we ask the questions and really look at the data and do more deep, a deep dive. And that's what this is really powerful. And I really applaud all the efforts of all the departments, uh, not only HSS, in looking at this. <clears throat> And I, I want to um, thank you for bringing that up because I noticed that um, the mortality rates among African-American women in childbirth is significantly higher than any other group. Um, and the same is true for uh, breast cancer and a number of other conditions. And also for you bringing up the issue of language. And I had actually forgotten that and I shouldn't because it's been an issue in my own family. But if you cannot access providers um, who can help uh, with the language or who have that language proficiency um, because not everyone has the ability to have someone in their family help translate and it's very difficult especially if you have um, older members of the family who are needing care and the younger person is the one who can translate and they are going into a very difficult social situation with a physician and that member of the family. So language barriers are very significant as well. Um, but definitely race has, is an issue with regard to a number of conditions, especially for women of color. Um, and that's why I bring up the issues that, and I'm glad that we're monitoring that um, and that we're staying tuned. But we have an incredible workforce. We have thousands of people. Um, and I think it's important for us to continue to monitor that. And I would expect that our um, plan members will periodically report to us what they discover within their own um, networks um, and reports from their, um, their provider members with regard to issues that may impact a number of individuals that they serve with regard to race, color, creed, language, and all the other social determinants. Thank you. Well, I have one final question. It's about your employee population. You said that you're standardizing your exit interviews. What are you learning from them? And are you learning that there are particular diversity, equity, inclusion hotspots that you need to address? And so I'm going to defer. I'm not on the management. Oh, I'm going okay. to defer to them. Um, yeah, I, unfortunately, we were not able to do uh, the exit interviews on the very large number of people that left recently. Um, but uh, in, in prior to that, when we we're doing it, there um, kind of what you ex that we didn't see anything um, along racial lines. Um, more concerns about um, some of the supervision and management, uh, which is classically why people lose leave jobs but some some of the and just speculating on what we may have heard should we had we had an opportunity to interview the people that left this last summer it really was promotional opportunities um and um because there's uh just we're not that big we don't have that many pr promotional opportunities in our department and there are steps up that people can have throughout the city so that's it's a mixed blessing in in that arena but what what um you know i've always been taught to attend to is is really trying to um help people 
help managers manage their employees well so people don't leave um, because of a manager. But that, that's not an issue at the current time. Thank you. I have one more question. So in phase two, it will be more service and outward focused of the, um, of the ORE's, uh, I guess, directive or directions. Do you anticipate that the things that you already have enshrined in the strategic plan with, with respect to health equity and outward facing items will mesh up with what they have? Or do you anticipate having to tweak what you have in the strategic plan? I think what we already have around identifying vulnerable populations, external equity indicators, a lot of the alignment already exists. I would imagine that there would be expanded learnings when the framework is distributed. And they purposefully did framework phase one first to have the, that working happen from the inside out, right, around org culture. But it is anticipated for late 2023, early 2024. Okay. And I would imagine there would be significant alignment. I think I just to add to that, I think for us in DHR and retirement, we have a very different uh, lens on external because the external is us. <laughs> um, and uh, so I think uh, Lucy you know, uh, has, has faced that challenge with OMG is helping them understand who, who we serve, uh, whereas most of all other city departments serve the general public um, and we serve in city employees. So it is quite Different, and we do have the advantage of working in a system that at least, at, that that understands a lot about uh, the issue. So that's that's helpful. Um, I think it'll be um, a, it's a bigger challenge in many ways for the um, other departments that are serving the public. Thank you, and thank you, Let's thank you for a very thorough report. Um, we'll take public comment now. Thank you, Vice President Howe. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. No one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment. I'll be looking through to see if there are any callers on the public comment queue at this time. We have two callers on the, the phone at this time. One caller has raised their hand. I'll be uh, unmuting you momentarily. Caller, welcome. Hello. Welcome. Yes, hello there. And, uh... I'm sorry, thank you very much indeed for affording me this opportunity. Um, it, it's very admirable. Now, I, to be fair, I didn't uh, come in at the beginning of your meeting today, but it's admirable. It's good that the Health Service Board is conducting this very important discussion. Um, what I would like to say, um, uh, and I'm not, I don't think this is semantical at all, um, is that I think a really important consideration here even more than the word equity, is to look at the word equality, because equality suggests something more expansive, suggests something more exacting. And um, I think it's admirable to have a plan. Um, but I think the most important thing is implementation and action in terms of the directive of that plan being fulfilled. And that, 
I think is the larger challenge for all of us, uh, not just the Health Service Board. Um, I think as some of your commenters have alluded to and people who are involved in the hearing more directly than I have alluded to, is that the challenges uh, in terms of the challenges that black women face, uh, brown women face, and other women face uh, in our society with health outcomes is extremely grave. And while the Health Service Board, I think, is is doing the things that boards should do and study this seriously, um, I think, quite frankly, as someone who is a, as a black man in San Francisco, um, is desperation time. It's beyond that for for us as, as black people, as brown people, and other persons who are in these very difficult positions in our society vis-a-vis -vis health. So um, I don't know if anyone's going to respond to any of that, but I do think, and I do thank the board for entertaining my, my comment, but I would say um, that the language has to be a lot stronger. And again, I need to um, watch your whole hearing in context. Um, but if we talk about racial, uh, racial equality versus racial equity, I think we're beginning to burrow a little bit deeper into what we need to start doing to solve these very grave problems. So thank you very much for, for allowing me this time to speak. Thank you, caller. Thank you. I'll be checking to see if there are any further callers in the public comment queue at this time. So we have one caller on the phone line. Zero callers have uh, entered the public comment queue at this time. With no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you very much. And so this wraps up our uh, normal agenda portion of the uh, of our meeting today. So right before we dive into the rates and benefits calendar, I think it's appropriate to take a 10 minute break. Uh, I think that President Scott would would also agree with that. <laughs> so want to do him proud. So we'll take a 10 minute break and be back at 210. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. SFGov TV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. Present. Commissioner Breslin? Here. Commissioner Canning? Present. Commissioner Follinsby? Present. And Commissioner Zvansky? Present. With that, we have quorum. Great, thank you. So we're about to enter. We are entering now the rates and benefits portion of our agenda. So would you please call item number nine? Agenda item number nine, the presentation on the 2023 rates and benefits calendar for the plan year 2024. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Abby Yant, SFHSS Executive Director. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Abby Yant, Executive Director. Um, the rates and benefits calendar in your packet uh, does reflect the change this month that uh, activates our hold meeting on May 25th. Uh, it is a special meeting where we will be hearing the um, active uh, rates from our partners at Blue Shield and Kaiser. Um, and uh, we're gonna sort of set the stage for that at the next agenda item here today. Mm. Um, we do have, um, Holly, were you able to pull the health service board? It was just displaying. Is it coming up on your screens? There we are. Yeah, no, I'm just talking about there's a possibility that we may need a second meeting in June, mm. and um, the June 22nd meeting does not work for some reason. I can't remember why, but you were going to poll the commission to see if there was a second. It's on here. It is on for the 22nd. We've confirmed with the submission for the Board of Supervisors that that date is too late. So we will, I will be giving a poll for everyone at the end of the meeting, for all of our commissioners, to find a potential second hold date. Right. Okay. That's on my, on here. I, I know, no, but it's, I know, but it's not gonna work. It's too late. It's too late. Oh, to, for the board to, to, to be able to get the package to the board on time. We just discovered that, so that's why we're polling a second. Oh, I see. Yeah, meeting. Yeah, so, um, I mean, hopefully we won't need it, uh, but we are going to secure a date uh, in case we do, and Holly will be following up with each of you to uh, explain and okay. get your uh, availability. Uh, and with that, I think that's all I have to say about the rates and benefits calendar. Thank you. <coughs> um, we'll take public comment. Thank you, Commissioner Howe. Uh, public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium, so we will move to our virtual public comment. And I'll be moderating for the remainder of the meeting for our remote public comment. I'll be checking if there are any Callers in the public comment queue at this time. So we have zero callers on the phone line and zero callers have specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. Seeing no further callers, public comment is now closed. 
Thank you. Uh, next agenda item, number 10, please. Agenda item number 10 is Board Education Healthcare Cost Trend Influencers Update. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Iftikhar Hussein, SFHSS Chief Financial Officer, and Mike Clark with Aon. Mike Clark, Aon. Um, today will be our first uh, rate recommendation for the 2024 plan year for a medical plan. We've had some prior discussion on dental, vision, life, and uh, long-term disability, but uh, thinking uh, that we are discussing for the first time a medical rate recommendation today, uh, Chief Financial Officer Hussein and I uh, thought it would be prudent to deliver an update on what we're observing in the marketplace in the three months uh, since we were before you in February uh, presenting on healthcare cost trend influencers. So on the agenda page two, uh, we'll discuss new information that are influencing healthcare cost trends and ultimately 2024 SFHSS plan renewals uh, since our February presentation to this board. Uh, they include a focus on healthcare labor cost growth, how that's outpacing inflation, ongoing COVID-19 expense impacts, behavioral health impacts, and pharmaceutical impacts. Uh, we'll also discuss new information uh, for Medicare Advantage plans that uh, is resulting from a reduction in the growth of government payments uh, that are expected to create pressure on 2024 Medicare Advantage uh, plan premiums. Uh, the slide on page three, on the next slide, uh, you'll recognize it from our February discussion. It was a marketplace view comparing historically uh, the performance of SFHSS medical rates in total, uh, percentage increase in premium changes relative to three other benchmarks, uh, the 10 county premium changes, uh, Mercer National Study, and then um, Consumer Price Index uh, for San Francisco. And you know, as we noted then, favorable historical uh, trends for SFHSS, but we did voice concern in February about economy-wide inflation and the likelihood that would drive wages up in the healthcare sector, uh, which may in turn drive negotiated prices up with the health plans. So fast forwarding uh, to today, uh, some escalated medical trend drivers, and uh, CFO Hussein will comment on a couple of these uh, after this slide. Uh, really four elements that we're seeing influence in the present. I mean, first of all, uh, the healthcare wage and supply cost inflation is uh, very real. Uh, we're in talking to the health plans as they renegotiate their contracts with providers. Uh, we definitely see that influencing uh, the price uh, in those negotiations. Excuse now, me. Now, oh, uh, the slides are not advancing. Yeah. There you go. There, oh, there thank you. you. Thank you. Um, so I'm in the upper left corner, uh, just starting on each of these four uh, cost drivers. So healthcare wage and supply cost inflation and the impact that's having on negotiated providers, it will impact uh, different plans at different times because carrier provider contract renewal cycles uh, do vary. They're typically renegotiated every two to four years, uh, but we are starting to see some early evidence of that uh, present into uh, discussions with the health plans going into 2024. 
uh, in the lower left, mental health and substance abuse services utilization and cost uh, continue to increase. Uh, so provider supply is, is increasing, which is great uh, to see. Uh, availability of, of services to SFHSS members as population demand also increases. In the upper right, increasing prevalence of chronic conditions, um, which is magnified uh, by COVID impacts uh, that can lead to higher demand for utilization of uh, health plan services as well as prescription drugs. And then in the lower right, cost shifting uh, from the government to the private se sector can be magnified as um, fewer individuals qualify for Medicaid into the future. Um, if you've read, the federal government is going through a Medicaid uh, redetermination process presently uh, that will reduce the number of US citizens that um, are on Medicaid, as well as the federal government reducing uh, the growth of payments into Medicare Advantage plans, uh, which we'll touch on later in this presentation. And I'll turn it over for the next slide to CFO Hussein. Um, so this slide talks about research done by uh, McKinsey in their forecast of uh, total national healthcare expenditures versus uh, GDP growth. And the right-hand slide um, looks at the, is, is the post-COVID uh, uh, projection. And you can see, um, you know, in, in, a, in a graph on page three, you saw that our premiums actually increases in 20, 2023 were quite low. And there is a wave of uh, higher increases coming, beginning, actually, according to this slide, in, in, in 2023. Um, and, uh, uh, and so that wave subsides. Uh, and then uh, following that large wave in 23, you have a gradual, uh, you have a reduction in steady state around uh, the 6% number, uh, according to this forecast. And um, uh, some of the, um, and the reason for that, actually, let me see the next, if you can, um, I'll, I'll get into the reason. So if you can advance the slide. Um, yeah, and this, um, the graph on the top left shows um, uh, uh, wage inflation, and uh, it is actually correlated to the right-hand side. So as people, if the supply of workforce for healthcare has that shrunk as, as due to the greater resignation and people exiting the workforce, uh, the inflationary pressure applied on the wages side but again, in this trend, you could see that inflationary pressure easing uh, towards the end of 2022 as the work, people went back uh, into the workforce or, or uh, healthcare was able to bring back people, um, um, get the recruitments up and, and, and mitigate that uh, acute shortage, uh, which is what the right-hand side shows. Okay, so I'll turn this back to Mike. So on the next slide, slide seven, uh, I mentioned earlier service pricing. Uh, you know, influencers there just around general uh, wage and labor impacts, but also we're seeing a magnification of large claims. Um, complex care needs are escalating, as we're seeing in client data, as are the cost to treat complex needs uh, due to overall uh, inflation and in the prices that providers are providing, as well as the rising costs of advanced health technologies. I mean, there are amazing developments technologically in the medical field uh, is, uh, that you know, impact the ability to treat certain conditions much more effectively 
in today's environment versus even you know three to five years ago, as well as incredible developments in pharmaceuticals that all come at a price. You know, service pricing for high-cost claimant services, it's driven by general inflationary trends, uh, supplies, labor, increased provider negotiating power, power um, hospital and health system consolidation, and as well as non-discounted charges at higher spend thresholds. And on the right side, you know, high-cost claimant incidence increases driven by technology advancements uh, to treat these high-intensity conditions as well as just you know, overall declining um, health of the population gradually over time. And in fact, one particular carrier uh, noted from 2020 to 2021, their total book of business, million dollar claims, increased by 19%. Uh, in March, I presented uh, the information at the bottom of this slide uh, to this board from the Blue Shield of California 2022 plan experience, you know, the number of claimants in the Access Plus and TRIO plans that exceeded 500,000 in annual spend increased from 28 individuals in 2021 to 49 individuals in 2022. You know, that may not seem like a huge impact, 21 individuals, but when you consider the magnitude of the spend uh, that we're talking about here, you know, it quickly adds up in terms of what um, cascades into plan experience. You know, I've mentioned population health risk is increasing. Um, according to uh, one study that was performed by Optum, more than a quarter of healthcare costs uh, are associated with one of four complex conditions, diseases of the heart, you know, musculoskeletal, you know, so your bones and, and muscle uh, makeup, cancer, and kidney disease. Uh, we're seeing utilization being driven by declining overall health, uh, long-term impact of COVID on the body, uh, longer survival rates for those with rare chronic conditions, in part because of the advancements in medical technology. Excuse me, um, Holly, can you, you get that? There you go. I'm sorry. Um, we'll just want to make sure that we are saying that advanced slide yes. so we can see. Sorry about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as many as one out of six people uh, who have recovered from COVID continue to have symptoms uh, six months later, um, you know, based on a recent study. On the right side is just a screenshot from uh, the risk scores report that Wren reported to this board uh, last month, uh, showing for active and early retiree populations, just the distribution of uh, particular chronic condition elements uh, that drive spend by status of health in the population. So if we go to the next slide, I'll turn it over to CFO Hussein. So this slide shows the lingering effect of COVID um, so even though the pandemic hospitalization stage uh, is over, uh, we are still seeing ongoing um, uh, need for care. So um, the, um, um, the key, you know, the, the opportunity here really is to provide, detect, provide timely care and provide as much care in the outpatient setting as opposed to the pandemic stage where uh, was of high, high uh, frequency of hospitalization. Um, yeah, and okay, so I'll talk about mental health on the next slide. Um, so one of the lingering effects we're seeing is mental health. This graph shows you um, uh, the demographics. Um, you could, there is an indication here that it's, uh, that we are um, uh, seeing uh, um, the stigma uh, gradually go away from mental health, so more people are seeking treatment. 
uh, there's a shortage of uh, workforce for mental health, which is also uh, being addressed. Uh, but you could see younger people uh, more willing uh, to report and seek treatment. And, um, you know, when sex is male, females, because you know, say men never see doctors. <laughs> um, uh, um, but, um, uh, you know, this is one of the areas that we, uh, the initiative that Leticia described is to remove those barriers to care and to um, create peer programs where people um, uh, seek care early for mental health. Then if we go to the next slide, uh, just talking about some influences in pharmacy. Upper left, specialty drugs, uh, it dominates conversation about healthcare costs uh, specific to pharmacy. Those costs continue to grow, especially when new medications that address rare conditions, um, you know, come into the marketplace along with tremendous developments in cancer treatments. You know, on the lower left, there are biosimilar drugs uh, on the way. Uh, one in particular, you know, one specific drug, Humira, everybody's talking about, you know, when we'll see the biosimilar on the market that's taking some time. But at least in 2023, you know, we don't expect to see significant cost reductions from either, you know, blockbuster uh, drugs going generic or biosimilar uh, drug entry. You know, hopefully that will change into the future. Upper right, uh, utilization of traditional brand and generic drugs will continue to increase as population health risk uh, continues to rise. And then, you know, just one example of a drug class that's getting a lot of uh, press right now are, you know, what's technically called GLP-1 or glucagon-like peptide-1 medications, but these are diabetes drugs uh, that are more and more being uh, thought about and utilized for weight loss uh, uses beyond its original intent. Uh, and then on the next slide, uh, just pivoting to, you know, what's happening with methodology changes in uh, government reimbursements affecting Medicare Advantage plans going into 2024. Um, the majority of the medical and prescription drug claim costs within a Medicare Advantage plan are covered through federal government payments uh, managed by the Centers for Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid, or CMS. So the premiums, for instance, that you know, we ask you to approve every year are essentially what's left after the total plan costs are offset by these government revenues. Over the past several years, those percentage increases in CMS revenues have been pretty consistent with the percentage increases in annual claim costs. And so the renewals for the Medicare Advantage plans have been relatively favorable. But uh, recent changes and how CMS has redefined its revenue determination processes for Medicare Advantage plans will lead to a gap in the increase between the total cost of the plan and then the you know, increase that CMS uh, will present in their revenues. So it will create pressure on the net premiums that flow uh, to the MAPD plans. So we'll talk further about this uh, when we present our Medicare Advantage plan rate renewals at the June 8th Health Service Board meeting. So in close, uh, final slide, you know, we've reviewed uh, CFO Hussein and I, you know, what we observe and see in the marketplace uh, that's happening to trend. And again, with updates uh, from what we presented in February, the degree to which these influencers uh, that we discussed here today will impact a particular plan will vary. You know, overall, our Aon actuarial team 
is expecting about a 7% typical healthcare cost trend for plans nationwide into 2024. In addition to trend, you know, some of the forces that we discussed in this document are likely to result in some significantly higher rate renewals for some plans than what was projected um, when we spoke with you on this topic in February. So um, jointly, SFS, SFHSS and AN, uh, we continue to work very diligently with the plans to understand their specific cost trend drivers uh, that impact their proposed rate renewals and those plan specific uh, cost influence or impacts will be discussed with each plan's renewal recommendation uh, both today for the plans that will follow as well as the upcoming HSB meetings. Vice President Howe. Thank you for the good news. So, <laughs> no, but no, we appreciate it. Thank you. Colleagues, any questions, comments for Iftikhar or Mike? Well, thank you very much. Uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, again, it is not good news. I mean, we, we, we all recognize that. I guess, you know, um, rather than trying to dissect away, you know, all these influencers, um, certain areas such as pharmaceutical costs, you know, we're seeing what an abysmal response there's been at the federal level um, in this regard. I mean, dropping the dose of insulin, you know, hasn't really impacted much else. Um, other than one drug out of this. So I guess the question I have is as you negotiate and look at all these things, um, where, where does the health board, where does our board have some input into um, what we can ask um, plans to, um, pl to um, <clears throat> come up to the table about? You know, um, you know, I can, there's not many areas that I see that we can't, you know, obviously staffing and, and salaries, we all support that. I mean, there's no way that we're going to demand or ask plans to cut back on staffing or, or uh, salaries. Um, so where, where are the indicate, you know, obviously you mentioned a drug for out, sort of <coughs> weight loss. Um, and I don't know if it's got FDA approval for that. But, you know, there are lots of drugs that are being utilized for non-indicated um, you know, indications based on a practitioner's um, decision uh, along with a patient. Sometimes that's driven by just the popularity of the drug and the advertising. Drugs that may seem have a very small niche are being advertised as if they're going to be able to play football again for some, by, for some other reason. I mean, it's just it's amazing to me. So I guess the question again is where can we, um, you know, impact that? One of the issues that you don't address, and I don't blame you for this, is that the government has been been reporting about fraud through gov for these health plans, particularly Medicare Advantage, in terms of their billing um, and essentially over um, coding and all this. And we don't really address this, but I think that it's something that may has, at least has some impact. And I don't know if that is a factor that might actually should be addressed and what can be addressed and what impact it might have if we are more um, adamant. Um, to look at um, the over-coding um, that occurs, not so much for the 27 or 48 patients, you know, in the hospital. That's kind of difficult, but for the majority of our patients who are seeking outpatient care. So I don't know what the question is exactly, but you can address any one of those or none of them if you want. Yeah, so I'll, well, I'll start with one latter point very quickly. We will talk on June 8th about three key drivers behind the reduction and in the increase of the CMS revenues, but one is 
a reclassification. Um, and again, technical term, the old diagnostic uh, classification was called ICD-9. And recently, uh, an ICD-10, an advanced um, uh, framework for capturing diagnosis was adopted. And 2024 is the first year that revised framework is factoring into um, reimbursements for plans into Medicare Advantage, and it is reducing in, or it is reducing the amount of diagnostic information captured on members that feeds into the revenue formulas uh, for various Medicare Advantage plans. So I'll, I'll kind of stop there, very technical, but kind of a preview of what we'll talk about no on June 8th. Um, your more general question, I would summarize it this way. I mean, I as an actuary think about trend as price influenced and utilization influenced. So what could you ask of the plans? What do we ask as the plans, SFHSS and AON when we meet with them? You know, from a price standpoint, it's, you know, how are you advancing into alternative payment models with providers, you know, trying to move away from just pure fee for service into, um, you know, frameworks that reward for, you know, value and outcomes delivered. Um, I think is a critical element. Um, you know, how a given health plan negotiates uh, the next wave of the contract uh, with this base of providers, um, that's something we're definitely keeping an eye on. You know, trying to understand, you know, what are the going in positions of those health plans to try to, you know, I guess hold the line on any change in price for services in trying to drive it in a more value-based way. Um, and then from a utilization standpoint, you know, I always look at it as uh, just doing best to try to help reduce demand for services. You know, certainly the healthier we all are, you know, the less we need care. And, you know, needing care is an inevitability. But, um, you know, trying to uh, engage the plans on how uh, preventive care is being utilized, how early identification of risk factors occurs, uh, when care needs arise, you know, maybe where are the more efficient and effective ways to deliver that care that produce a better clinical outcome that could also be more cost effective. Um, you know, strategies around pharmaceutical uh, management uh, falls into that. So, you know, I could probably go on for about two hours in response, but in summary, you know, to me it's about the macro of all the elements that the plan can influence uh, from a price and utilization management standpoint. So I think kind of dovetailing into what Mike said, um, you know, we do um, uh, have a say, this this board and uh, HSS has a say in, in, in the selection process for health plans. And so in, and in any time of change and disruption, which is what we see coming from this data, uh, it's important to partner up, you know, to look for There'll be winners and losers, and make sure that you know we are aligned uh, with uh, you know those plans that would bring in high value uh, and efficiencies. So I think um, um, the more integrated, well, the more um, the more managed the plan, like the ACO model, works more effectively uh, than an open uh, PPO type model. Uh, so we uh, so this I guess the exciting part. <laughs> is in here is an opportunity to actually develop some disruptive models and do some creative things as we um, look at 25 and beyond. But short term, I think we have a problem.
and I'd like to point out that, at least in my view, um, I serve two masters, the members of this system, active and retired, and providing affordable and um, exceptional health quality, health care um, quality for the, for the dollars and the affordability, and the city and county of San Francisco that also um, has to be considered with regard to um, what it contributes. And I think we have those formulas are spelled out. Um, we don't have a lot of variability, I think, in terms of what the city can provide and the city is locked into where it is and then the rest falls to members. And when I look at that, how do I justify saying to my colleagues and my friends and the people that I serve on this board who put me here to watch out for their best interest with regard to their health care and their ability to continue to afford quality health care as they move from being active employees, raising their families into retirement. And <clears throat> when I look at this, I just, I hit the wall. And I looked at that and said, oh my God, where do we go from here? What can we do? And you're right, we get creative, but we have to look at the quality. We have to look at negotiations. We have to look at what's out there. What can we continue to provide that's affordable, but that does not diminish the quality of care that we provide? And I don't know what the answer is to that, but I just want to point out that this is, that it's a conundrum and we're stuck with it. And going forward, and you're right, Dr. Follinsby, none of us are going to argue the fact that <clears throat> people want and deserve living wages and they deserve spent too many years in labor. So I'll never go against any of that. And the providers deserve to be compensated appropriately. But we're looking at what other factors can we influence? What goes on with Medicaid? What goes on with Medicare? What goes on in the drug industry and the pharmaceuticals with regard to all of these wonder drugs that come out and it's very exciting, <clears throat> great opportunities, but the prices are way up here. And a lot of that, that that might improve the quality of healthcare, what can we do to help bring some of those costs down so that we can all live with affordable healthcare? It's a human right. It's not a privilege. It's not something that we should have to deal with with regard to nickel and diming. We need to find a way that everybody can do it. So for whatever ideas that come forward, um, I'm, I'm begging for the ideas. I'm begging for the cooperation from our, our plans um, and then whatever we have to do uh, to be able to serve both our members and the city and county. When we look at you know, the mayor's proclamation that we've got a deficit, we all have to figure out where we can help offset that deficit and keep things affordable. And we're representing the people that are serving the city and have served the city. What can we do here? So thank you for your ideas, but we're all crunching the same, the same cookie. 
I don't know if there are any other comments. I, I have one question. That, you know, we've always gotten a great amount of detail about benefits, you know, in terms of what's the cost of a, of a routine visit, you know, beyond the, the annual physical, what's the cost of the ER, what's the cost of day hospitalization. We've um, weighed in on that on certain occasions. I remember when we objected to a significant rise in co-pays for subspecialty, you know, visits, professional visits, thinking that yep. if you can get the the patient to the right person the early and not put in a barrier such as the copay uh, that might actually improve care, improve access, improve outcomes. Um, and so we've sort of objected to some of those small tweaks and benefits. I guess the question is, is are we looking at the benefits for across these health plans? Will, can we expect to hear as in these renewals some changes in um, cost sharing in that regard? Yeah, I'll, I'll say we've discussed uh, the potential for uh, design changes. Um, it could be something this board could take into consideration. Are we going to be presented with that, or, or do we have to yeah. sort of bring it out de novo? How do we, yeah. what can we anticipate we'll be hearing? At this point, the the plans have presented a few plan design alternatives that create decrements that I would consider to be relatively minor. So then the discussion becomes, do you still proceed with copay increases, deductible increases, what have you, that generate perhaps less financial influence than would be preferred, mm -hmm. or longer term consider other strategies that could help more of a longer term trend mitigation, you know, past 2024. Well, I certainly appreciate that we have, we have time to look be after 2024 for strategy changes, but I think that what's facing us now is plan year 2024. And so I think the news that you've presented to us is very daunting. I think it puts our board in a very odd position uh, to, uh, it, I'm not suggesting it's anybody's fault. I'm just saying that the, I anticipate that we will be in an awkward position to listen to this news and to have to make a decision up or down on, on these changes. And it also makes me very concerned about the whether these plans on the long term are sustainable, given the shock that I anticipate we're about to receive. <laughs> so. Any other questions or comments, colleagues? Maybe more of a process, and maybe Director uh, Gant, this is more directed to you, but um, if, if we are at an impasse with uh, supporting whatever is going to be proposed. I know we're all in anticipating it not being good. Um, if, if we're unable to come to an agreement, what are the next steps for the system? Um, I plan on presenting a recommendation to this board on the 25th. Um, so, uh, the first and foremost, um, the as we know, I mean, these are um, substantial partnerships um, uh, that impact tens of thousands of people. And so 
um, not being able to find a, a, um, a viable recommendation uh, would indeed be uh, precedent setting, and I don't know that that's where anyone wants to be. Uh, so I, I'm uh, looking forward to being able to present a recommendation. While we may not be totally comfortable with it, we will understand it. Because um, I think, as Mike laid out, there's there's a lot of complexities to this, the times that we're in. Um, so uh, we will bring that forward. Uh, this is just to, on a pragmatic level, uh, the emergency planner and me um, and Holly did put together uh, an alternate of June meeting as well, um, because we do all live and breathe by the clock. And um, so uh, my worst case scenario in the short term is that we uh, extend these conversations to a second meeting in June. After that, it gets really hard um, because we have to be able to get that package delivered to the Board of Supervisors in time to have it fully enacted before the August recess. Um, so there's, a, there's an important clock there. And um, I think I'm stating the obvious, I think, for our board and our plans are all quite well aware of what these time constraints are. So we're hope we are um, aiming to get a full recommendation uh, to this board, and where there may be some options for us to consider, we can um, um, enumerate those as well to the board. Um, and I think you know you you, you uh, raised one of them, uh, Dr. Ponsby, um, where uh, uh, you know in some ways every penny counts, and in other ways we want to be sure that we're disrupting in an effective way that doesn't um, cause even it doesn't have unintended consequences. Um, so I think we're, um, we're considering all of those. Uh, our employers, because uh, we have the city, we have the school district, we have city college, um, uh, and the courts, um, uh, all, all employers that are struggling with budget problems, uh, quite serious, and so um, they're anxious as well for us to resolve this so that their budgets can be uh, completed. Um, so that make, that adds to the pressure for all of us to get through this um, in a in a sooner rather than later. Uh, thank you. you clarify the significance of the landscape in front of us. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. All right, no more comments, and we'll go ahead and take public comment. Thank you, Vice President Howe. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with our in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment. I'll be checking to see if there are any callers in the public comment queue at this time. So we have zero callers on the phone line. And with no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Uh, please call item number 11. Agenda item number 11, review and approve health net canopy care medical RX FX Flex-funded non-Medicare HMO plan 2024 rates and contributions. This is an action item and will be presented by Mike Clark with Aon. 
So Mike Clark, Aon. Uh, this will be our first medical and prescription drug uh, renewal presentation uh, for the 2024 plan year uh, for the HealthNet Canopy Care um, medical and prescription drug flex-funded non-Medicare HMO plan. So on the agenda page, uh, we'll kind of run through just a, a quick uh, rate-setting methodology preface um, that will cascade through all of our uh, presentations on the plan renewals, um, get into a summary of the HealthNet Canopy Care uh, 2024 HMO plan rating, uh, present the rate cards uh, that are recommended for health service approval, uh, approval today. And then in the appendix, uh, rate card footnotes, uh, the 2023 rate cards for reference and a glossary of terms. Um, the appendix is there for your reference. So moving ahead to page four, uh, just looking at different plans within SFHSS and the funding methods for each. Uh, the HealthNet Canopy Care HMO plan is a flex-funded plan, uh, we see in the middle of the page. Uh, Flex-funded plans is an insurance approach where most of the claim dollars are based on services delivered uh, to members uh, paid out of the trust, but with fixed cost for certain healthcare services uh, known as capitation, as well as uh, the administrative fees. And in the case of the Blue Shield plans, uh, large claim pooling at one million annually. It just so happens for canopy care, the vast majority of the medical cost is covered through capitation, as we'll review in this report. So I, as the AN actuary, uh, look at the cost trend assumptions uh, that are uh, presented by the plan and uh, join them with the health plan determined administrative, uh, and again, not for this plan, but for the Blue Shield, the large claim pooling fees. You know, generally in underwriting, uh, starting with prior period claims, applying an inflation factor uh, for trend, any design or headcount changes accounted for, adding in those administrative and other fees, and then also adding in the SFHSS specific cost elements, such as vision and the $3 sustainability fee. On page six, uh, just to note that today we're presenting on the HealthNet Canopy Care. Uh, we'll present the remaining non-Medicare active employee and early retiree recommendations uh, two weeks from now on May, on May 25th. On page seven, just a refresher for how the uh, CCSF, City County of San Francisco, uh, MOU formulas uh, play into the determination of how total cost rates are shared by employer uh, and members. So for the 93-93-83 approach, you know, basically what that means is that the employer is paying for 93% of the employee-only tier cost, 93% uh, of the employee plus one tier cost, and 83% of the employee plus two or more cost, and then there are certain employees who have a 196-83 approach with the employees then paying the remainder, uh, the percentages at the top of these bar charts and the lighter shades. Uh, for early retirees, the employer contributions are determined by city charter, and then ultimately the member contribution becomes the difference between the total plan rates calculated for the early retirees across each of the three coverage tiers, uh, retiree only, retiree plus one dependent, retiree plus two or more dependents. And so you can see here that essentially there's three elements of the employer contribution uh, that come into 
the uh, calculation of the employer uh, uh, contribution for the retirees. So on page 10, uh, this is the recommendation that I'll go through with you, uh, recommending the Health Service Board approve uh, 2024 Health Net Canopy Care HMO plan rate cards, uh, which reflect a 3.7% increase in the overall Health Net Canopy Care HMO plan projected medical prescription drug and fee costs uh, from 2023 to 2024. So we'll move ahead to page 12. Um, HealthNet Canopy Care provided their financial information in the non-Medicare health plan renewal submission uh, used to determine the rates that I'm presenting to you today. Uh, the HealthNet Canopy Care HMO plan design is the same as that for the Blue Shield HMO plans. Uh, the elements of cost include uh, expected claim costs for the small portion of medical that is uh, fee-for-service claims as well as all of pharmacy claims net of rebates. Uh, the capitation charges, which cover most uh, medical services, the, um, the fees that were determined as part of the RFP process in the fall of 2020, approved by the Health Service Board in February 2021, uh, in 2024 being the last of the three years uh, for that fee agreement. Uh, the VSP basic plan vision premiums, which uh, per prior approval, this rates and benefit cycle will remain at 2023 levels. Uh, the $3 Healthcare Sustainability Fund, which will uh, stay the same as current, and as well as the rate stabilization buy-down of 118,000 that was approved by this board on March 23rd. Uh, the components of the cost change, uh, what you'll see here is, uh, again, this is the first year going into 2024 that we're able to see actual SFHSS plan experience in this plan uh, with the completion of 2022. And so from a capitation standpoint, there was a very significant reduction in the capitation rate from 2022 to 2023. Um, if you recall, the overall plan rate uh, for this plan reduced by 10.4% from 2022 to 2023, and a drop in the capitation rate was a large component of that. So even though the capitation rate is increasing uh, by 15.3% into 2024, that rate is still lower uh, than what was in place for 2022. Uh, the fee-for-service claims are increasing, but again, that's a very small component of the overall medical cost. Uh, the benefit to the pharmacy is HealthNet projected a level of pharmacy cost in the RFP process that was much higher. And at this time last year, there just wasn't enough experience um, year to date in 2022 to meaningfully adjust that uh, pharmacy per member per month uh, cost component. Now a full year and a little bit into 2023 is known for the pharmacy cost for SFHSS and it's appreciably less than was originally anticipated by um, HealthNet in the uh, their RFP submission in the fall of 2020. So you'll see a pretty significant reduction uh, to the pharmacy cost component of the overall rate going into 2024. And then the other two elements are tried strictly to uh, the agreements struck uh, with a three-year period coming out of the RFP uh, for a 3% medical administrative fee increase and no change in the pharmacy administrative fees. So when you um, then put all this together, it's about a 5.5% 5 
projected increase in the overall plane cost before uh, the stabilization buy-down is applied. So going ahead to page 15, uh, the rate cards are on these pages, including the two employer contribution models that we discussed earlier, 93-93-83 and 196-83, uh, as well as the early retirees based on city charter formulas. And the mathematical relationships of the rates are the same as what exists for the Blue Shield HMO plans. On page uh, 16, you'll see the change in rates, both for active employees and early retirees in the 93-93-83 model for the actives, as well as all early retirees on the right side of the page. Uh, the plan will continue to have no contributions for early retiree uh, single tier and then 3.7% increase basically to all the rates um, on the page for active employees and early retirees. And then the next page shows it uh, for the active employees who are in the 196.83 uh, formula. Uh, that leads to the rate cards uh, starting on page 18. So for the 93.93.83 active employee population, as well as the early retirees in the plan, um, you'll see the buy-down, for instance, in the claim stabilization amount. Uh, this is the first year that rate stabilization applies to this plan uh, because 2022 was the first year of, of plan experience. And then the next page is the 196.83 uh, rate card. So with that, uh, I will take you to page 21 to close. Uh, the recommendation for health service board action Staff recommends that the Health Service Board approve the 2024 HealthNet Canopy Care HMO Plan rate cards as presented in this material, which reflect a 3.7% increase in HealthNet Canopy Care HMO Plan projected medical prescription drug and fee costs from 2023 to 2024. Vice President Howe. Thank you, Mike. Um, colleagues, any questions, comments? I, I move we approve the recommendations of the HealthNet Canopy Care Medical a therapeutics fee flex funded non Medicare HMO plan 2024 rates and contributions. Second. It's been properly moved and seconded. Um, so we'll go to public comment. Oh, wait, I think we can, I think we can still talk about oh, it. Oh, we can still talk about yeah. it. Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, <clears throat> I don't actually have any questions. <laughs> I think this is very clear and all that and very, um, is there some projection about how you've alluded to the fact that this, is a, is uh, going to be is lower than what we're going to see with other um, <laughs> uh, non Medicare um, HM, I mean, plans um, in the in the coming weeks. Do you have any sense about what this is going to impact? How this might impact enrollment? Um, you know, in the in the next cycle of uh, in October. All the actuary would say is. Being a numbers person, you know, I would always encourage every year that plan participants evaluate their choices, certainly understanding um, the physicians and facilities that they're, um, you know, that, that are part of their healthcare community. Um, but I would certainly, you know, every year encourage members to look at the comparison of, of rates uh, by plan. And I appreciate that. I, I just think, I guess, and I realize this is a loaded question, but I think that part of the reason, you know, that we have maybe some um, uh, encouragement um, based on the ultimate rates that we might see more people 
enroll in these plans because I think that the enrollment, although it's improved uh, fairly remarkably in a percentage matter in terms of absolute numbers, if my recollection is correct, is still relatively small fraction of the population. If that's if I'm, you know, yeah, that's correct. correct. There's still a relatively okay. modest enrollment in this plan, although it has certainly grown right. since introduction. Any other questions or comments before we take public comment? Nope. We'll take public comment. Thank you. Thank you, Vice President Howe. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment. I'll be looking to see if there are any attendees in the public comment queue. And we have zero callers on the phone line, so hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll go ahead and take a roll call vote, please. Roll call vote, starting with Vice President Howe. Aye. Commissioner Breslin. Aye. Commissioner Canning? Aye. Commissioner Follinsby? Aye. And Commissioner Zemanski? Reluctant aye. <laughs> Still an aye. Thank you. It's uh, unanimous with a little bit of reluctance. So thank you. And we'll move on to item number 12, please. Agenda item number 12, review and approve one-time suspension of the stabilization policy and approve the use of two-thirds of the active employee Delta dental um, Dental PPO Stabilization Reserve Surplus as of December 31st, 2022. In addition to review and approve the Active Employee 2024 Dental Rates for Self-Funded Delta Dental PPO Plan, Fully Insured Delta Care USA HMO Plan, and Fully Insured United Healthcare HMO Plan. This is an action item and will be presented by Mike Clark with AM. Mike Clark, Ann. Um, I will not repeat what uh, <laughs> Board Secretary Lopez just communicated. Um, we have a, uh, I guess, a multi-recommendation uh, ask of you today. Um, first of all, to revisit uh, and revise the rate stabilization action uh, that was agreed upon earlier in this rates and cycle for the Delta Dental Active Employee PPO Plan, and I'll explain the rationale shortly and then also review the plan rates uh, for the self-funded plan uh, for active employees, the Delta Dental Active Employee PPO, as well as the two fully insured plans available to active employees, and then ask for uh, your approval of our recommendations today. The plan designs for the active employee plans are in the appendix of this document uh, for reference and will not review them. So looking ahead to page uh, four, um, without going through a lot of detail on the methodology, just a reminder that um, one of these plans is self-funded, uh, the Delta Dental Active Employee PPO plan, and then two are fully insured, uh, the two um, uh, HMOs. So I'm gonna look ahead to page seven. Uh, during the March 23rd Health Service Board meeting, uh, this board approved the use of one half of the December 31st, 2022 Stabilization Reserve Surplus, or 5,557,000, which was one half of the total uh, surplus of 11,113,000 be applied towards buy-down uh, for the Delta Dental Active Employee PPO Plan for 2024. 
in subsequent discussions uh, that have occurred and looking for opportunity to, um, you know, try to reduce uh, overall levels of uh, budget increase into 2024. Uh, it was identified and, and suggested that we consider the use of two-thirds of the stabilization uh, reserve surplus for this plan uh, to be considered in rating uh, for 2024. You know, I, as the actuary, uh, feel that still maintains enough of a stabilization uh, reserve in the plan. There is, as we have a chart in here, you know, there have been significant surpluses. Uh, there was an instance of a two-thirds uh, buy-down approval a couple years ago uh, due to building stabilization surplus. And so I have no concerns about the viability of uh, revising the recommendation and asking for this board to approve uh, two-thirds for today, which would reflect a buy-down of 7,499,000 in the 2024 rates. Uh, this would produce an additional 1,852,000 uh, in 2024 active dental PPO rating buy-down uh, relative to what was approved on March 23rd. So looking ahead to page nine, um, again, just renewal summary, uh, reminder that uh, retiree dental rates were approved uh, last month on April 13th. Today focuses on uh, the active employee plans. Um, they are, uh, just as a reminder on page 10, uh, the employees who were offered these plans through SFHSS are City, County of San Francisco employees, uh, Superior Court Municipal Executive employees. Um, for most employees, uh, they pay $5 for the, uh, per month for the employee-only tier, $10 per month for the employee plus one dependent tier, and $15 uh, per month for the employee plus two or more dependents tier for the PPO plan. Uh, there are no contributions required. Uh, for employees selecting the two HMO plans and Superior Court, Superior Court MEA employees pay no contributions for any of the plans. Um, it's important to note that the San Francisco Unified School District and the City College of San Francisco employees, do, uh, the, those organizations do not elect to offer dental coverage uh, for their active employees through SFHSS. So on page 11, um, just to give you a sense of what I'll uh, ask for your approval of today for the active employee dental PPO influenced both by favorable claim experience as well as the adjustment to the rate stabilization buy-down. Uh, we're proposing the 6.9% reduction in the total rates. And then for the fully insured plans, Delta Care and UHC have proposed no change in those rates for 2024. Um, most of the electing employees, as you see on the right side, are electing the PPO plan. I alluded earlier to the substantial uh, rate stabilization surplus that's built over time in this plan, uh, largely due to favorable claim experience. And so with the recommendation that 7,409,000 be applied towards 2024 plan year rates, it will still leave uh, more than 3 million in rate stabilization starting in 2025. And then page 13 just touches on information we talked about in March um, around the favorability of the plan. So let's go ahead uh, to page 16, uh, just talk briefly about the Delta Dental Active Employee PPO. 
Um, so first, uh, this is a renewal cycle uh, for the administrative fees uh, for the plan. And so with you know, the overall rates decreasing 6.9%, there will be a slight increase in administrative fees uh, for 2024. These are on a per employee per month uh, basis. Uh, they've been locked in for the last five years at $4.62 per employee per month. Uh, the proposal is to move to $4.70 for next year. And then as part of the year two and year three stated commitment, uh, the fees would move to $4.82 for 2025. The rates themselves, along with the distribution of enrollment uh, by the tiers for the Delta Dental Active Employee PPO plan are shown here on page 17, including uh, the recommended uh, self-insured um, recommended rates that are 6.9% lower uh, than the 2023 amounts. On page 19, uh, just quickly on the dental HMOs, again, proposed no change in rates uh, for Delta Care. Uh, it's part of a three-year rating commitment, uh, so those rates are proposed to be locked in for three years, although today we're just asking for your approval for 2024. And for United Healthcare, uh, no change in rates. Uh, they provide one-year rate renewals. And so you see what those rates on a per-employee, per-month basis are uh, for each of the three coverage tiers uh, for each of the two HMO plans on page 20. So with that, on page 22, um, I'm actually asking you for five uh, approvals today. Uh, today's recommendation is staff recommends uh, for Health Service Board approval the following 2024 active employee dental plan stabilization and rating and administrative fee actions, uh, noting the specific information that I've uh, just uh, reviewed with you. So number one, suspend the Health Service Board approved health uh, self-funded plan stabilization policy on a one-time basis for the Delta Dental Active Employee PPO plan. Number two, approve use of two-thirds of the December 31st, 2022 stabilization reserve surplus, uh, which is 7409000 or two-thirds of the existing surplus, 11113000 to be applied towards buy-down across all rating tiers for the Delta Dental Active Employee PPO plan for plan year 2024. Number three, approve the following recommended. Delta Dental Active Employee PPO rating actions. You know, first the nominal increase in the per employee per month administrative fee of eight cents uh, to a level of four dollars and seventy cents per employee per month, and then the overall six point nine percent decrease in the self-funded total cost rates from twenty twenty three to twenty twenty four. Number four, approve the following Delta Care USA fully insured dental HMO plan recommendation. No change in the insured rates from twenty twenty three to twenty twenty four. And number five, approve the following United Healthcare insured dental HMO plan recommendation. No change in insured rates from 2023 to 2024. Vice President Howe. Thank you, Mike. I don't know if you've ever asked us for five things all at once like this. <laughs> it's a record. It is a record. Thank you so much. Colleagues, any questions or comments? Uh, Madam Vice President, I move that we uh, approve uh, the 2024 Active Employee Dental Plan Stabilization and Rating Administrative Fee Actions with specific info on each recommendation provided uh, by Mr. Clark uh, and articulated in the record. Second. It's been moved and seconded. Are there any additional comments or questions before we go to public comment? 
I would just like to comment that, again, the term favorable claims experience is a two-edged sword. And we've been concerned all along, and we continue to get um, messages from our members regarding uh, access uh, to Delta Dental providers. And so, you know, even though this is good news in terms of being able to reduce the rate a little bit, it seems like some of the problem is not based on the uh, plan rates itself, it's based on access, whether it's member-initiated or, or attempts to initiate. So I think we need to re redouble our efforts um, to continue to encourage, um, you know, um, accountability for the dental providers, um, as well as encourage our members to utilize the services that they are paying for, because this favorable claims experience looks good on paper, but it's not good for the teeth or for the general health. Yeah, and just a quick reminder, um, in March 23rd, we presented on the 2022 planner experience. Many of those data points backing up your uh, comments are contained in that report. I just want to add that um, for those of us that go to some of the pre-retirement seminars um, and speak to our colleagues at those times, we tell them all to get their dental work done before they sign those retirement papers. Um, and I think looking at what we're presented with here, um, there's more proof that they need to do that. The one question I do have, um, Mike, is that a couple of years ago we did another two-thirds um, stabilization where we, we did that, I think, because we needed to. Um, do you see this as some kind of trend for the future, or do you think, because you're telling us that... Um, we can still do that and have enough reserve left to be able to take care of business um, for the future. And I'm just wondering what your prediction might be with uh, going forward. Sure. Uh, my thought is I'm hoping this is the last year I need to come to you for the exception to the um, board stabilization policy and be able to return to the typical uh, one-third amortization of the surplus over the course of the three-year period. And in the interim, I think um, we should all focus, like you said, on trying to elevate, especially utilization of preventive care and preventive services um, into the dental plan, as that will certainly um, you know, promote overall uh, health for members. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Holly, I think we can go to public comment. Thank you, Vice President Howe. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue at this time. We'll start with our in-person public comment, and no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment. I'll be looking to see if there are any attendees in the public com remote public comment queue at this time. There are zero callers on the public phone line as of now, and with no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you very much. So that concludes the rates and benefits portion of our agenda for today, and we'll return to the regular board. Oh, excuse me. We, oh, it's not the heat this time. It's, it's, it's just my forgetfulness. Yes, let's take a roll call vote. Roll call vote starting with Vice President Howe. Aye. Commissioner Breslin. Aye. Commissioner Canning. Aye. Commissioner Follinsby. Aye. Commissioner Zavansky. Aye. 
it's unanimous and that really concludes the rates and benefits portion of our agenda so we're now moving on to regular board matters uh, and please call agenda item number 13. agenda item number 13 reports and updates from contracted health plan representatives this is a discussion item and any plan reps can approach the podium Good afternoon, board. It's so good to be here in person and see everyone. Heather Chianello with United Healthcare. Um, I just want to take the opportunity today. I have a new part of our team with me um, to introduce Ryan Jones as a vice president of account management on our public sector team. He's not new to United, but new to the team that will be uh, working with the SFHSS board and team members. So thank you. Good to be with you. Uh, thank you. Um, and looking forward to perhaps interacting with you in the near future. I do have some family here in the San Francisco area, right within the city limits, so I'm up here frequently. So nice to be here officially, if you will. Well, welcome, Ryan. Uh, we're lots of fun. So <laughs> forward to seeing you more in the future. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. Anybody else? This is your big chance. <laughs> All right, seeing no more uh, presenters, we'll go ahead and take public comment. Thank you. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching in the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with our in-person public comment, and no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment. I'll be looking to see if there are any callers in the remote public comment queue at this time. And there are zero callers on the phone line. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Great, thank you. And uh, our final agenda item, please. Our final agenda item is adjournment. So I called this meeting of the Health Service Board on May 11, 2023. Uh, to adjournment. Thank you. Good.